You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello, and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. We've seen and heard a lot of discussion about whether or not we're entering a new Cold War between the U.S. and China over the past years. But this week, we saw something that really did recall the frosty diplomacy of the 1980s. And that was when China withdrew its ambassador to the country of Lithuania, at the same time as telling the Lithuanian ambassador in Beijing to pack her bags and get on the plane back to Vilnius. Why? It's all about branding. There's one word that Beijing does not want to see on the door of a new office for Taiwanese trade in Lithuania's capital. And our man in Brussels, Finbar Birmingham, has the news and the context about the evolving relationship with China and the European Union. And if you live in Australia, you may have seen some stories referencing a new study from the Lowy Institute analyzing the reach of China's long-range bombers and ballistic missiles to Australia and how its ambitious shipbuilding program aims to dominate the South China Sea. You're going to hear an in-depth interview with the editor of that study, and we'll also hear from one of our China desk editors about the latest military exercises of the PLA, both in the South China Sea and way out in the west of China, where the Russian military has been training with new Chinese-made equipment and weapons. And on top of that, there's been a massive expansion of nuclear missile silos. There's a lot to talk about this week. Let's get started. Finbar Birmingham joins us uh, calling in from Brussels. Uh, Finbar, thanks for joining us. Hey, Chad. Good morning. Good morning and good afternoon. China is recalling its ambassador to Lithuania, and Lithuania is doing the same with its ambassador to China. So which one came first? <laughs> well, I mean, China has basically led both of these initiatives. It's a bit of a, a swirling diplomatic storm, which has been building up for months now, and it's really come to a head this week. On Tuesday, uh, we had news that China recalled its ambassador to Lithuania and demanded that Vilnius does the same. Now, the background to this is that in March, Lithuania said it would open an enterprise office in Taiwan by the end of the year. I understand that's going to happen next month. But what really got China's goat was the decision to allow Taiwan to open a Taiwanese representative office in Vilnius. Now, this is a matter of semantics. And in most other parts of the EU, these offices They're usually called Taipei representative offices here. In Brussels, for example, we have the Taipei representative office to the European Union and Belgium. Now, this is in accordance with the One China policy. We saw this very clearly at the Olympics where Taiwan competes under the name of Chinese Taipei. So China saw this as a contravention of the One China policy because it's called the Taiwanese representative office rather than the Taipei representative office. When I asked a senior Lithuanian official yesterday why they went with this, which seems to be sort of quite antagonistic. They also said it was a, as a game of semantics. They said they allowed it to be called the Taiwanese office rather than the Taiwan office because it represents a community of Taiwanese people rather than a sovereign state of Taiwan. But really, I get the sense that they wanted to poke China in the eye a wee bit with this. The official also said that one of the main aims here is to enmesh Taiwan more tightly into the network of international relations just to make any attack on it more difficult. Now, Lithuania has quite a bit of recent history with China as well as the Taiwan issue. It was in May the first country to bail from the 17 plus one group, which is an initiative set up by China a few years back to ostensibly boost trade and investment. But in Vilnius, the government reckons this is a tool to divide and conquer in and among the European Union. It was sort of joined under a different administration. And the new administration, which took office at the end of last year, is much more hawkish on China. And they say that the economic promises have also not materialized 
they would rather deal with China at an EU level or at a bilateral level rather than at this sort of grouping level. So that's a bit of background. Where are we now? China has ordered that Lithuania recall its own ambassador. Lithuania will recall its ambassador, I was told yesterday, but only after she completes her mandatory three-week quarantine in Beijing. This is another wrinkle of detail. She only returned to Beijing following a summer break in Europe to begin her quarantine on Tuesday morning. On Tuesday afternoon, she was told she had to leave. So the timing's kind of interesting there. Another note on the timing. Tuesday was a, a huge day in Lithuanian politics. They were holding an extraordinary plenary session of the parliament to discuss the migrant crisis on the border with Belarus. This is another very messy situation. Lithuania and other neighbouring countries, such as Poland, Latvia, they have accused Belarus of directing hordes of migrants over the border in retaliation against European Union sanctions. These sanctions, if you recall, the plot thickens, were enforced because of the hijacking of a Ryanair flight by the Belarusian government to arrest a journalist over Belarusian airspace in May. Now, as this debate was going on, I was trying to call a few MPs and, and uh, lawmakers that I know in Vilnius, and they were stepping outside to take the call. And they were telling me about these protests that were going outside the windows where there were huge amounts of people protesting against the decision to build a sort of border wall, I suppose you would call it, to keep these migrants out. One MP, it got a bit messy later in the day, a bit violent later in the day. One MP I'd been chatting to texted me the following day saying she'd been held by the mob for 30 minutes and the police had to negotiate her release. Now, all of this is the backdrop to China recalling its ambassador, which on any normal day would be the biggest story for Lithuanian politics. But this week, it was really just one of many huge stories. I was actually sitting waiting on a call from the foreign minister on Tuesday, which never came. His assistant told me she'd never seen him so stressed. This continued into this morning. I woke up here in Brussels to check the news and we saw articles running in the state media. They've been threatening Vilnius all week with further action over this Taiwan issue. And today we have stories in the Chinese state media calling for Russia, Belarus and China to all work together to punish Lithuania further. Now, bear in mind what I just explained about the, the border crisis and, and what's going on with Belarus. This is kind of the worst nightmare for Vilnius to have all these blob of issues to sort of have a confluence of issues all come to a head if that was to happen. I don't know how they would do that, but I mean, it's certainly something that they would be concerned about. In Finbar, I wanted to turn back on that is with so much, you know, swirling around right now, how is the EU reacting to this or, or some of the, you know, Lithuania's neighbors in the Baltics in terms of this whole deterioration in the China relationship? Well, in terms of neighbors, we haven't really heard much. Like Lithuania is by far and away the most vocal critic of China in the European Union. Most other states prefer to hitch their wagon to Brussels. They don't really want to put their head above the parapet because you can see what happens here. Like, uh, you know, if you are a vocal critic of China, it will come back to bite you in the behind at some point. The EU put out a statement on Tuesday after the announcement was made saying that they do not consider this a contravention of the one China policy and that this will inevitably affect EU-China relations. Now, I think Lithuania, uh, when I spoke to a senior official yesterday, they're kind of hoping that China's desire to maintain a healthy relationship with the European Union will sort of temper any further action that China might take on Lithuania for this issue. But for what it's worth, they are expecting more. They are expecting Beijing to do something more. And in, in those sort of not-so-thinly-veiled threats that have been appearing in the state media, they've been threatened to cut off diplomatic ties altogether with Lithuania. But we have seen the EU and the US, of course, come out and support Lithuania. They kind of have to. But, you know, they've both issued statements and that's about the height of it so far. I was speaking to a senior Latvian official yesterday as well. 
And they said that, yes, of course, they do support uh, Lithuania. They do sort of share a lot of the concerns Lithuania have over China. And But I get the sense that they're not really willing to go too strongly on that. They are, you know, I, I think Lithuania is definitely the, the most vocal. And some quarters in, in Lithuania, I was speaking to the shadow foreign minister the other day, and he was saying that he considers the behavior quite antagonistic, unnecessary. There's no need to sort of pick a fight with China over issues like this whenever you've got so many more, I guess, important issues closer to home, as I sort of outlined with the Belarus situation. So not everybody's on board with this assertiveness from Vilnius, but, you know, the government will not change tack. They've told me they will not. They're sort of determined to follow through with this. Uh, They're going to open their Taipei office in September. They've got a few irons in the fire as well, a few other things in the pipeline, which we shall hear more about in due course. In Finbar, what should we expect is sort of the next course on this? I I mean, are there sort of real ties in terms of economics between Lithuania and China where we could see tariffs or is, you know, saying maybe Lithuanian airlines have to fly around China to get to Taipei? Do you have a sense of sort of what, what our next spot is in this? Not so sure, but we don't see too much economic dependence on China from Lithuania. Its exports to China are relatively low. This is part of the reason why I think it feels emboldened to do this. It doesn't sort of have the same. I mean, if you look at my own home country of Ireland, has it? Ireland is one of the few countries to have a trade surplus with China. You know, it sells a lot of beef, a lot of dairy. And so they sort of go out of their way not to say anything too controversial on China because they don't want to get cut off. Lithuania is kind of in the opposite court. They really have very little interdependence with China. They had hoped as part of the 17 plus one grouping that they would see more Chinese investment, that they would see their exports to China rise hasn't really happened. The exports are actually falling and the trade deficit with China is massive. I mean, trade deficits are obviously not the be all and end all as we learned during the Trump era. But, you know, as, as an illustration of interdependence, we can see just from the volumes of exports from China to Lithuania, they're not very high. You know, so I don't think that there's too much of an economic problem they can make. I mean, there are, of course, individual Lithuanian businesses that transact in China that are operational in China. Will life become a bit more difficult for them? This is a concern of the Lithuanian government. Will there be sort of export control or export licenses withheld? Stuff like that. These are these are things that Lithuania has sort of added to its calculus when it's trying to work out how China might may react further. The airline ones, that's a good point. I haven't heard anything about that. But look, we have to wait and see. There is an expectation that we haven't heard the end of it, but we don't really know what might be next. And then, Finbar, I wanted to sort of turn to another bit of China geopolitical news this week. On Wednesday, a Canadian man, uh, Michael Spavar, was sentenced to 11 years in China on espionage charges. Not only have we heard from the Canadian Prime Minister and the Secretary of State for the United States, but we've, we've also heard from the EU on this. And um, mm-hmm. they've said that the, uh, his right to a fair trial and due process, quote, has not been upheld, end quote. The president of the European Council has said, quote, arbitrary detentions have no place in international relations. The EU stands in full solidarity with Canada in condemning the sentencing of Mr. Uh, Spavor. And so when the president of the European Council says they have, quote, full solidarity with Canada on this, what can we expect from this? Is this merely another strongly worded statement or could the EU be close to taking some action? I think it is essentially a strongly worded statement. The EU would not take action unilaterally on this. Charles Michel is the head of the EU Council, but he really 
doesn't have that much unilateral power himself. The EU Council is where the 27 member states gather. And so it would have to be a decision of the member states. I mean, one thing to bear in mind that we've seen over recent months, though, is an increasingly, well, more of a will to work together on China issues from these sort of self-described coalition of like-minded allies in the West. So, you know, the US, Canada, the UK, EU, Japan, not in the West, obviously, but they've been involved from time to time, Australia and New Zealand. So, you know, this is total speculation, but if Canada was to, you know, issue some sort of sanction or whatever, maybe the EU could be working in, in alignment with that. But I mean, that that's not based on any sort of material to say that this might happen, but just that they have happened. It has happened recently with the Xinjiang sanctions in March. Look, I, I think that there's uh, this has definitely piqued the attention of governments in, in Europe. A lot of the behavior that China gets called out for, you know, and a lot of this, maybe a lot of the suspicions people have about how China operates in terms of human rights are being confirmed by issues like the Schellenberg trial the other day, or the sentencing the other day, where the Canadian was sentenced to death for drug dealing, and where uh, Michael Spavor was sentenced to 11 years. These are being linked to the Meng Wanzhou Huawei executive case. And so it's confirming, I suppose, a lot of the suspicions people have here in Europe and the leaders have in Europe about how China deals with human rights issues. So if anything, it's a sort of bias confirmation, whether we'll see any sort of firm legislative action and from that i'm really really can't say at this point and you know within all of that you know we've got hungary and poland moving closer to beijing at the same time we've got countries like lithuania who are sort of pushing back and so you know how do you see this sort of playing out within the eu particularly when they're being asked to stand in solidarity with the five eyes for example yeah, I mean, the EU is a bit of a mess on, on China, like in terms of its member states. Hungary has, um, to a lesser extent, Poland, but Hungary certainly has has put the brakes on a number of policy moves to try and act against China. We saw a few times this year already where the EU has tried to issue conclusions over Hong Kong to criticise Hong Kong for the national security law, for the Apple Daily closure to issue new sort of lifeboat measures to support Hong Kongers to move to the European Union, to postpone the remaining extradition treaties, these sorts of legislative actions. I mean, they all have to be agreed with unanimity at the EU Council. And so Hungary has just scuppered it every time. So the fondness for China in the Viktor Orban regime in, in, in Hungary has been a huge bone of contention Countries such as Germany have pushed to change the rulemaking process from unanimity to qualified majority vote, which would sort of have bypassed these countries. Of course, it's not easy to get disagreed. So the EU is not really speaking with one voice as much as it would like to pretend that it is. There are many countries who prefer to say nothing at all. They, you know, perhaps they do care about human rights, but they also care very much about their commercial relationship with China. They don't want to lose their export market. They don't want to lose access to Chinese investment, although that has fallen away over the last couple of years with investment screening and stuff. So it's complicated. I think on Hong Kong has been really illustrative of how difficult it is to get things done whenever not everybody's on board. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it, it's almost like Hungary's playing sort of China's role on the UN Security Council, except doing it at the European Council. Finbar, thanks for joining us again. If you want to follow him, he's easy to find on Twitter. You can also follow his coverage on scmp.com. Thanks, Chad. 
As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com slash newsletters. We've had much discussion of the aircraft carriers and other types of warships sailing into the South China Sea from the likes of the UK, the US, Germany, and other nations over the past few weeks. In fact, another military exercise led by the US, this one called SeaCat, has begun this week off the coast of Singapore involving 20 different countries. But this week we're going to focus on China's military and what it's been doing in the South China Sea and also some very interesting activity on the far western side of China. The Lowy Institute in Australia has recently put out a detailed study on China's military expansion and increasing long-range capabilities titled Australia and the Growing Reach of China's Military. And we'll hear from the editor of that report in just a few minutes. But first, let's get an update on what China's Navy, Army, and Air Force has been doing with one of our China Desk editors, Teddy Ung. Teddy, you reported last Friday about China conducting military exercises in the South China Sea, uh, south of Hainan Island. Those exercises ended on Tuesday. But can you take us through what was involved? What was China doing? There is not much information released from the state media about what the PRA was actually doing during those exercise. But before that, I think many military analysts expect this uh, would be quite a large-scale exercise because the area that was cordoned off for other workshops uh, were quite large. It is large enough to hold an anti-aircraft carrier ballistic missiles uh, exercise. So it is quite a significant exercise being staged by China, especially as the U.S. and its allies are also holding drills and other exercises uh, in the Indo-Pacific region. So there's been a a lot of exercises with the U.S., with Japan. We've also had a, a British air carrier group come through. Even India and Germany have been talked about having ships in the region and, and in some of these exercises. But, you know, was this the first time that China has done one of these anti-aircraft carrier exercises in the region? You know, particularly at a time when the HMS uh, Queen Elizabeth was sailing through the region. No, China actually filed two aircraft carrier killer missiles uh, in last August. One of the uh, missiles, the DF-26B, was launched from the northwestern province of Qinghai. And the other one, uh, which is a DF-21D, lifted off from Zhejiang province in the eastern part of China. And I think the missiles hit a target which is a moving ship in the Parasau Islands. The Chinese military did not officially confirm they had conducted the test, but a former senior colonel of China revealed the details. I mean, several months later, when he was addressing domestic and international affairs forum in China. And so, Teddy, uh, we've not seen a video or, or anything sort of confirming the test or exactly what went on in that area, correct? No, we haven't seen any video. I mean... For both the test last year and the military drills just happened this week. So we have to wait to see if the Chinese military will release any information about that. At the same time, Teddy, the PLA right now, they're holding their own exercise. It's probably as far away from the seaside in China as you can get in the Gobi Desert. Could you tell us a little more about that? Yes, definitely. I mean, uh, more than 10,000 troops and 200 aircraft and 200 armored vehicles were participating in a joint exercises between China and Russia 
in the Lingsha region. And this is a kind of a five days exercises which started on Monday. And from Chinese state media reports, 81% of the weapons being used in the drill were brand new or advanced weapons. This is to show that China and Russia have built up a lot of a strategic trust between the two nations, which is very important for them. So that's why they are moving closer to uh, kind of having more security and uh, military cooperations as a kind of a united front against the United States. And also this drill was happening in uh, Lingsha at a time when the security situations in Central Asia particularly Afghanistan, is kind of worrying with the withdrawal of American troops. Uh, China is particularly worried about the situations in Afghanistan because the Central Asia region is bordering Xinjiang and China has been blaming terrorist groups or separatist forces for staging uh, violence attacks in Xinjiang and is very worried that uh, some of the terrorist or violence groups in Central Asia may be sneaking to Xinjiang, making the security in the region more unstable. Yeah, it's right on China's doorstep there. And I want to ask, how common is it for Russia and China to have these sort of joint exercises? Is this something that we see often or is this something we could see a lot more in the future? Well, China and Russia uh, often have military drills, but what's special about this one is that it happens after the pandemic. So it's kind of uh, showing that the military cooperation between China and Russia are going back to full swing after the pandemic. For the Russian side, it's also their first time to use uh, so many new Chinese weapons in this large-scale exercise. Yeah, it's going to be something to watch as there's lots of questions about Afghanistan and the stability of Afghanistan after the United States leaves. Teddy, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. Sam Rogovin joins us. He's the director of the International Security Program at the Lowy Institute. Sam, you're the editor of a recently published analysis looking at China's growing military capability through Indo-Pacific and the South China Sea and it's particularly focused on Australia. And I wanted to ask you if you could unpack the basic premise of this paper, that the uh, PLA now has the capability to reach Australia that even at the height of the Cold War, the Soviet Union did not have. Right, yeah, look, I mean, as the editor here and as the as the, the person responsible for commissioning the paper, which we got uh, an, an American, a very experienced American analyst, Tom Shugart, to write, Basically, my intention here was to bring a, a little bit more precision to the Australian debate about, uh, about the PLA and about the expansion of Chinese military capabilities. So my feeling as, a, as a, an observer and as a participant in that debate here in Australia is that it's talked about in very broad general terms and, uh, you know, the idea that Australia is for the first time facing a great power which is not also an Australian ally. Uh, so that is a first for us and that is an important challenge. But there wasn't enough sort of precision about, well, what exactly does this mean? What exact, what, what military capabilities could China bring to bear against Australia? And I should stress that the focus of the paper is very much on capabilities. It's not, a, not on intent. And the author, Tom Shugart, is, is very clear to talk about the fact that, well, just stating the obvious, China and Australia are not enemies in fact, we have a close, very close trading relationship. China's our most important trading partner. But of course, defence policy in this country, in every country, is always built on the idea of 
capability rather than the intent. What could go wrong? What could be used against us in the worst case? And so that's what this paper tries to explore. And Sam, I, I wanted to sort of go back to that point about sort of the economic relationship, because during the Cold War, you know, the USSR and Australia didn't really have an economic relationship. But, you know, um, Beijing and Australia, you know, ha- have a very, very tight relationship. And we've seen, you know, a tariff war in, in recent years and, you know, such a, a dependence on it. So could you sort of unpack the economic relationship and how complicated that makes this when, when you sort of think about military? Yeah, that, that is to me the the critical difference between the situation we're in now and the Cold War, which is that Australia, not just Australia, but every country in in the region in Southeast Asia and in Northeast Asia, has a high level of economic integration with China, which is an economy that is already uh, far larger than the Soviet Union ever was, and that that is the critical difference in strategic terms because it makes it much much harder for powers which, uh, you know, have differences with China and which oppose China's bid for, uh, you know, improving its own status and basically becoming the leading strategic power in Asia, it makes it much harder for them to assemble a coalition against China because in the end, the decision that all of those countries have to make if there was ever a foreign policy crisis uh, or a security crisis, the decision they'd all have to make is, well, is this important enough for me to ruin my country's economic relationship with China, which is uh, so critical for, you know, for our economic future. And within the report, one of the things you talk about against the background of China's military and sort of the, their growing reach is the weakness of the U.S. shipbuilding program and the prospect of the Pacific fleet, if not departing, decreasing. So could you talk a little bit more about those findings? Well, I should stress those are Tom's views and Tom's findings. He, sure. he's, he's, a, he's a brilliant analyst of, uh, of open source uh, information and he, he brings a sort of, you know, a precision to this question that I think has, has really been lacking. What's absolutely clear is that China is going to catch up and then exceed American shipbuilding rates and not just the quantity of shipbuilding but quality as well. So China still has a, a lot of catching up to do in that regard. But that catch-up has happened very, very rapidly, and I think most analysts in this field would now say that the major combat ships that China is now turning out at a really breathtaking pace are every bit as good as the equivalents you would see in the United States or in Europe or Russia. And then the other thing, of course, that's in China's favour is when you compare it to the United States, is that China doesn't have any pretensions, at least at the moment, to being a global military power, whereas the United States does. So it divides its efforts over the entire globe. China's military ambitions at the moment appear to be focused primarily on the Asia-Pacific region and perhaps secondarily in the Indian Ocean. But it certainly doesn't have pretensions to being a global military power just yet. So all of its effort can be focused on, uh, on its own region, And that means that the imbalance that we're already starting to see between the United States and China is going to grow ever more acute. And within the analysis, there's sort of three areas that that you look at about China's growing military presence. You talk about the increasing size of the Blue Water Navy. You talk about the development of long-range strike aircraft and the growing number of ballistic missiles. But I I wanted to ask, how important is the South China Sea in, in sort of fortifying that to the missile capability for China? The answer is we just don't know at the moment because 
the PLA has only very slowly and incrementally militarised those artificial islands. The first obvious point is that we've seen the building of military infrastructure on, on those islands, in particular three in particular, where we're seeing air bases and uh, seemingly, and, and, and partly here I'm relying on some earlier analysis that Tom Shugart has done with open source uh, satellite imagery, you know, he, he has found clear evidence that the Chinese are putting in underground fuel dumps, which uh, would be useful in the case of conflict and, and would make them less, uh, less vulnerable to air attack. Uh, so we're, we're seeing the development of air bases on three of those uh, bigger islands. We're seeing deployments of military and paramilitary vessels from China. And we're seeing, I think, with increasing frequency, the deployment of Chinese military aircraft. One more category, we're seeing uh, anti-air and anti-ship missiles also being deployed to those islands. What we haven't yet seen is uh, the deployment of either offensive air or uh, land attack missiles, whether cruise missiles or ballistic missiles. Those have not been deployed to those islands. So at the moment, we're seeing surveillance aircraft being deployed. Uh, we've seen airborne early warning and so forth uh, being deployed, some fighter aircraft, and there was a demonstration at one point of Chinese bombers actually, um, I think, just doing some touch-and-go exercises on one of the three uh, airfields, but no deployments and certainly no basing of offensive air. And I want to turn back to a, a bit of the report where you have this quote. It says, quote, China already possesses the capability to strike Australia from existing PLA bases, either with bomber aircraft or long-range missiles, end quote. And so within that discussion, you sort of talk about the H-20 stealth bomber. How realistic are the forecasts for the uh, bomber to be sexually developed? I think based on China's record and having myself worked inside the government in the intelligence community for a number of years looking at this problem, I can tell you that consistently Western analysts, both inside government and outside, have been surprised by how quickly Chinese military capabilities have come along. So for the most part, we have underestimated the speed of these developments. In some specific cases, China continues to lag, but for the most part, the pace of Chinese military technological developments has been underestimated. So I would put nothing past them. I would expect that the H-20 will be successful, will be produced at some volume, which you know, could be perhaps in the, in the several hundreds, and it will be a, you know, a strategic range bomber. And do you think it will be sort of the equivalent of the U.S. and their B-1 uh, stealth bomber forces? or? Well, I think, I mean, at the moment, the United States fields the B-2, which is the, right. the stealth bomber, strategic bomber, and it also is about to field, or at least it's in development, the B-21, which is essentially the successor to the B-2 and also will, um, I believe, replace many of the B-52s and B-1Bs that the American uh, Air Force now has. I would expect, you know, it would be roughly consistent with the stage of development in China's military-industrial complex if the H-20 was somewhere in between the B-2 and the B-21 in technological terms and in capability terms. So, for instance, it will probably have far less efficient and capable engines because that's one critical area where China lags. Another area where they lag is integration of sensors, so radar and other sensors, uh, and also the integration of the, of the larger battle picture and bringing that all together in one place for single platforms to have all that information about the battle space to hand. China lags a little bit in those areas. 
a wax fighter and those sorts of things. Um, let me go back to another bit with the report. The report ends with the conclusion that, quote, the war between Australia and China remains a remote possibility, uh, end quote. Can you explain what the end game of China's expansion means? Is this about building a force capable of invading Taiwan or, or something else within the region? Well, certainly the invasion of Taiwan is a matter of uh, very high importance to the Chinese Communist Party and something that's at the core of the PLA's you know, reason for being. I mean, that's partly why it exists, is to retake Taiwan. So clearly they put that very high on their list. It is actually curious, just as a side note, that it's taken this long into China's modernisation process of, say, the last 30 years uh, for China to actually develop the kind of amphibious capabilities, large-scale amphibious capabilities that it would need to retake Taiwan. That's only really just ramped up in the last uh, five years or so with the development of big, you know, flat-deck amphibious platforms. Um, so I think that's a core ambition for the Communist Party and for the PLA. Beyond that, I would say that China's capabilities are focused on First of all, being able to deter the United States and being able to essentially nullify the United States' capabilities. So not so much building a, uh, a force, and in particular a, a maritime force, that can sort of be prepared to meet the United States in a midway-style battle because that would be incredibly destructive uh, for, and China would probably lose. The point here more is to build a force and more to the point create a a general international situation through its own foreign policy where the United States basically decides of its own volition that its military uh, leadership, its preponderance in Asia is simply not sustainable anymore and it kind of gives up. And at that point, China will want a military and in particular a maritime force which can dominate Asia, which can be the, the not just the leading but the dominant military power in Asia. I still think that's a very large ambition and probably probably too big, given that there are other countries and the major powers in the region that can stop that from happening. But that, as I see it, is the long-term ambition. And before we conclude, I want to ask you about another bit of China's expansion. We've seen on the, on the other side of China, there, there's a new report talking about increased nuclear missile silo construction in Xinjiang. And I'm curious, what do you say about the suggestion that Beijing is moving away from a strategy of so-called minimum deterrence? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that this is a really dramatic development because it, on its face, it would suggest that if all of these silos are filled with missiles, and that's not all clear yet, but they may be, and then if those missiles all have, you know, let's say one uh, warhead each or maybe several warheads each, then the experts tell me that we're looking at something like a quadrupling of China's overall nuclear weapons force. So that is a dramatic development uh, in and of itself. Look, it's possible that China may simply be redefining the term minimum deterrent and redefining it in such a way that, well, first of all, they see the prospect of confrontation with the United States as being more likely, in which case they may feel a, a greater sense of assurance from having a larger force. Maybe they've also made a judgment about the capabilities of America's missile defence systems. Or the public information on that tends to be that those systems, particularly the, the systems that are uh, based in, uh, in Alaska and in California to intercept long-range missiles, that those are still far from you know, really fully capable and have lots of holes in them. But China may view things differently and, and decide that it wants a better 
a greater ability to overwhelm those defenses. I wanted to ask just about, given the location where these are being built, is that also sort of a NATO check? Because I don't know if there's a capability to reach Europe from there, but it's a lot closer than, say, California. Off the top of my head, I would say that the range of any new ICBM would certainly be capable of uh, reaching targets in Europe, but I doubt that that's the motivation. I think the motivation has more to do with the range of America's conventional weapons. Uh, so, for instance, cruise missiles that fired off American submarines, you know, are close to China's shores in the Pacific. So China wants to maintain a missile fleet that is out of range uh, of those kind of weapons and therefore can offer China a guaranteed second strike capability. Sam, thank you very much for joining us. This has been very informative. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's all for this week for the China Geopolitics Podcast. Don't forget, you'll get all the latest updates and breaking news on scmp.com. You can follow the SCMP Political Economy team on Twitter at SCMP Economy. I'm at Chad Bray. Stay safe, and if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, try and stay cool in this long, hot summer. Keep that mask on and get that vaccination. Bye for now.